I mean, he's been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 81 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective. We are powered by Audio Technica, and we've got an awesome guest for you today. Number one, New York Times bestselling author, it's Shay Serrano. But first, a little bit of housekeeping, starting with the iTunes review of the week. It's going to Zell19, who says, like butter. Jono and his podcast are a weekly listen that I look forward to and can't wait to ingest. Awesome guests and thoughtful conversation that makes for a wonderful listen each time. Thank you very much. Keep those reviews coming because they do help the show and I love to read them here. Quick mention, we've got an Audio Technica giveaway happening. You can get some headphones, a cap and some other swag. If you want to enter that, head over to the Putting In Work Pod Twitter account. Hit the pinned tweet link for a look at that Gleam comp and see what you can walk away with. Now, Shay Serrano is a guy that I never ever really expected would say yes to doing this podcast because he's such a busy guy, such a successful writer, author, illustrator. This is a guy who works at HBO's website, The Ringer, doing pop culture and sports coverage, mostly basketball and rap. And he's come through there previously working at Grantland with Bill Simmons' team and really having a a kind of bizarre journey to get there. So he's a Mexican-American living in San Antonio. He's been in Texas his whole life. Uh, So he was working in construction he became a school teacher and then after getting into doing a bit of freelance writing, things really picked up. He wrote a coloring book with a rapper, did the illustrations, put out a book when he was working at Grantland eventually called uh, The Rap Year Book. And that was kind of a surprise hit. It's a book that goes through like 25 years and tells you the best or most important song to come out that year. But Shay's just got such an interesting and personal writing style that is so easy to latch onto and he's just a hilarious guy. He's one of the most funniest followers on Twitter. So if you are on the platform, you got to make sure you're following this dude. Uh, so after that book and working at The Ringer, he's released Basketball and Other Things, which is basically a collection of essays about the NBA, some really goofy stuff, but also some interesting stuff like a lot of what ifs and determining some interesting things like how many seasons was Kobe Bryant actually the best player in the league? I think the answer was actually only one. And what's the most disrespectful dunk of all time? I think it was Scottie Pippen's over Patrick Ewing. And that book made it onto Barack Obama's list of his favorite books for 2017. Pretty big deal. Don't know about you, but if my book got onto Obama's or anyone's list of top books of the year, I'd be pretty stoked. So Shay likes to approach these kinds of topics from a unique perspective and come up with a pretty original concept for his articles, which we go into in the podcast. And I actually had to conduct this interview over the phone. I had to call him with some international data and hold the speakerphone up to my mic because he was driving at the time that I called and there wasn't any way he could get to a laptop or do it over Skype or anything like that. So audio is a bit different from what you're used to, but thanks to these sweet Audio-Technica mics, you can hear everything just fine. It'll be great. So here's Shay Serrano. Really loved doing this interview and I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, Shay. It's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited too. I think this is the first time I've done a podcast in Australia. Oh, there you go. Well, you've done the starters with Lee Ellis, so you have talked to Australians. You do understand us, but uh, <laughs> this will be a first. It's a, a first for me too because I've talked to a couple of Mexican guys, but I've never talked to a number one New York Times bestselling author. So thanks for yeah, thanks again for coming on. Well, there you go. We're breaking our kind of boundaries. Today. Yeah. Let's get into it. You are many things. You're obviously, I mentioned, an author. You're a writer for The Ringer. What do you like describe yourself as when you meet people who aren't familiar with your work? I just say that I'm a writer. Yeah. And then there are like 10 questions after that that they ask me. So how long do you wait till you drop the Obama is a big fan of your latest book? Oh, that's the first thing I say. Yeah. That's Before on... I even say my name, <laughs> that's the first thing I say. It's just on your T-shirt, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Cool. So let's go kind of backtrack and talk about your journey towards, you know, the books, the success, the ringer and all that kind of thing. I know you started off in construction and you ended up teaching. Was writing always something that you had in your back pocket or was it something that you just decided to give a crack one day? No, I didn't. I didn't know that writing was even a job that you could do for money. Yeah. It was just something I, yeah, I just backed my way into it. As you mentioned, I was work instruction. I did that for like two years and then I became a teacher and I really, really liked teaching. That was the job I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. And uh, I ended up freelancing on the side, just trying to make some extra money when uh, my wife and I got in a pinch and I enjoyed writing, but I more than the act of writing, I just enjoyed the idea that I could listen to an album or watch a TV show and then say some stuff about it and then people would give me money. So I just started doing that as often as I could. And before I knew it, and I say before I knew it, like it was a quick thing. It wasn't a quick thing. It was like several years. But mm. before I knew it, I was making more money freelancing than I was teaching. And, you know, stuff just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I got some opportunities to just write full time. And eventually I took one of those. And it was just all an accident, man. Yeah, that's a pretty cool accident. So. What was the actual process of like crafting your writing ability and developing a style? Was that something that happened again by accident or was it a very intentional process that you had to work through? No, that happens by accident. So for me, I was I was just getting out started writing and usually when you're in the beginning of your writing career or at the you know start of the process, you don't really, you don't know anything about like finding your own voice and any of that stuff. You just will find somebody that you like and then you end up trying to rip off their style basically. Yeah. So for me, one of the first people that I that I read that I really liked was Chuck Klosterman. Oh man. And uh, yeah, so I really liked the way that he wrote it. It always felt very conversational but it always felt very informed. I could tell he knew what he was talking about all the time. Hmm. Same with, with uh, Bill Simmons. He was somebody that I read when I was working in construction. Um, at the time, he was at ESPN2, so he would write a thing and it would be on that silly yellow background that ESPN2 was doing back yeah. then. But it's those guys like that. And I would read them and go like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to try to write like this. And then you do that long enough and you start to realize like, well, it's not going to, I'm never going to be a better version of Chuck than Chuck. I'll never be a better version of Bill than Bill. So you start building it into your own voice and your own style and put your own things in there. And this is a years-long process as well. I'm probably like halfway through it, figuring it out, but that's where we are. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Chuck and, and Bill too, I guess, because when I was reading uh, you know, basketball and other things today, and I was thinking like there's only two other people I can imagine pulling off this kind of book, and it would be Chuck Klosterman and Bill Simmons, but obviously you've got your own style in there that you've developed since then. The fact that you three kind of sit together as authors that can convey a humor and personality in your writing, I think, is, is a really cool thing for a reader like me. Yeah, that's uh, usually what I'm trying to get to. But again, this is the thing that just continues to happen every time I read somebody I like. I find myself, I, even if it's not on purpose, I find myself accidentally trying to do what they do. Like, she had told Lentino, it's this writer for The New Yorker, and I'd read every single thing that she writes because she's just so fluid and so smart about it, and I like I want to try to do that as well, or like Kara Brown or somebody like that. Hmm. It just keeps on going. You know, I'll, hopefully three years from now, I'll be writing in a totally different style than I am today. Yeah, 
And so, you know, you're writing those articles early in your freelancing career. How are you actually getting them published and what was the process like that of kind of chasing the next paycheck? Uh, well, with the, in the beginning, I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anybody in journalism, so I was just firing off shots in the dark. There's this pizza place by where I live, and they had a kiosk full of neighborhood newspapers. So I remember one day going in there and just like grabbing one out of every paper from that thing, and then like looking through them and trying to find who the editor was, and then emailing the editor or calling if there was a phone number and trying to like talk somebody into letting me freelance for them. And eventually, I was able to to get in contact with a woman at this place called the Near Northwest Banner, which was a little tiny neighborhood newsletter that a woman and her husband were printing up in their garage and like handing out in their neighborhood. Hmm. And she was the first person who paid me to write. She paid me $15 to write about the Texans or Craig Biggio or one of those. And so I did that a couple of times. And then I took that and I like flipped it into a freelance spot at the Houston Press, which is like a big all-weekly in Houston where I was living at the time. And... I just kept taking whatever little things I could and trying to turn them into whatever the next biggest thing was. So I was at the press for like four years, freelancing for them, and I started branching out and writing for bigger all-weeklies, like LA Weekly, and then I put that into to like ESPN or MTV or so on and so forth. Just kept trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually I ended up on Bill Simmons' radar. Hmm. And then he showed up with a job offer. And so I guess for a lot of people who, you know, come to a new career in their, I don't know, 30s or whatever it was for you, there's a moment when you have to take like a leap from your previous career into like just into the water with the new one. So was that difficult for you to say, okay, I think I can make it a full living out of uh, writing, but I need to quit teaching and leave that behind to really find out whether that's for me and whether it's going to work? Or was it very obvious that, that it was going to be there for you? No, I was super nervous about it. You read all the stories about how journalism is falling apart mm. and there are fewer and fewer jobs. And, and so I was scared that I was going to take a job and then it was going to be taken away from me after that and then I was going to be left with nothing. The only good part there was when I left teaching, I was on very good terms with the school. And with the principal, they were like, okay, if this doesn't, you know, if you want to come back, you're always welcome back. We did that whole damn. And when I signed on to go right full time, I signed a yearly, a year long contract. So even if the place closed, they were going to have to pay me for a year. So if nothing else, I'm going to try this for a year and see what happens. Hmm. And that's actually exactly what ended up happening. I signed a deal in July of 2015. So I quit teaching in June of 2015 because I had a, an offer to write full-time. So I signed that deal in July of 2015. And then in August, I mean, excuse me, October of 2015, the place I was going to, the place I was working at closed. They just shut down. And I was like, oh, crap. Okay. Um, I don't have a job now. I just left teaching. I've got a wife. I've got three kids. But because I had signed that year-long contract, they had to pay me out for the year so you know that was my introduction to the world of journalism was <laughs> getting fired three months after I, I got started and did that uh, give you a bit of a buffer zone to find more work and and that kind of thing yeah so during that time october of 2015 the book the rap year book came out it made the bestseller okay. list and then i got fired 
it was like a weird, like an up and down <laughs> moment for me. But I just assumed I was going to go back to teaching. I said, oh, okay, well, I'll ride this year out. I'll go back to teaching. It'll be like whatever. It'll be like what I was doing for the last few years. And then uh, the more successful the book became, the, the more options I had opened up. I got offered another book deal. I got started getting other job offers from other places. And eventually mm-hmm. I, by the time that, other, you know, my deal was up in July of 16, the ringer had started a few months earlier and I was like, Ooh, I'd really like to work there because working with Phil and them was a lot of fun. And so, you know, they reached out and eventually we worked that out and that's where I work now. And that must've been pretty, you know, amazing and surreal to this guy that you were reading when you were working in construction suddenly wants to work with you, right? <laughs> yeah, that was really crazy. I think it was the first time it super hit me. I was uh, in L.A. This was like not that long ago. This was maybe a year ago. I was in L.A. and I was hanging out with Bill. We were sitting in his office and he was giving me advice on like how to push a book out there, how to make a book successful. Because mm. he did the basket, the book of basketball, which was a number one New York Times bestseller. Yeah. So like all of the stuff that I'm trying to do, he has already done at some point. So we're sitting there and he's telling me tips or tricks or whatever. And... I was like, oh shit, this is wild. I remember buying this book in a Barnes and Noble a decade ago and now I'm sitting across from the guy who made it. Like that was just it was a big moment for me for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, a lot of people in your position would probably feel a bit of imposter syndrome, like I'm not meant to be here. It doesn't seem like that's a problem you have. I don't know, is that part of your personality that you just you back yourself and you shoot your shot? Uh, no, I do. I feel that all the time for sure. Yeah. Especially when, um, if I get lined up against proper journalists, <laughs> people who went to school for it, who studied it, like I definitely feel that, but I've been doing this long enough that I know it's less about not being an imposter. This is with regards to being successful, but it's less about not being an imposter and just more about just trying to do a thing like whatever. I can just say whatever I want and I automatically I become that thing. Like if you and I are having a conversation and I start telling you about my two younger brothers who I like had to raise when we were growing up because my dad left or whatever. Like I tell you that and you just in your head that's the story you have now. That's yeah. not true at all. I don't have brothers. My dad never left. <laughs> but if I say it to you, you think it's true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So if I'm talking about being a writer, I just start telling people, oh yeah, I know how to write a book. And then they let me write a book. Oh yeah, I know how to write a TV show. And then they let me write a TV show. Like you just got to say the thing and then people will assume that you're telling the truth. So just fucking go. Right. So just lie to everyone. That's your advice. <laughs> That's my advice. Yeah. If you want to be successful, just <laughs> lie to everyone about everything yeah. until you figure it out. Now, my friend Jesse, who's the biggest Shea Serrano fan I've ever known, once told me, and you can tell me if this is true, that you walked into a, a book publisher and said, I'm a number one best-selling author, give me a book deal. Did that actually ever happen? Because I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> no, that's not true, but that's a fantastic story. I should start telling people that I did that. Right. Okay. I don't know where that came from. Shout you out to that came from? I, I remember where that came from. There was, at the time, this was a couple of years ago, there was a Kanye song where he makes a reference about he walked into a, an album, uh, like a record label and give me, he said something like, give me 50 million and I'm a quit or something like that. Right. I must have been making that joke. Yeah, you must have that. tweeted something out. And... It's my guess. <laughs> okay. 
good to good that we can uh, debunk that myth. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, when did it come to you that you could actually do more than just you know be a freelancer? That you could actually publish a book and people would want to buy it because selling an article is one thing, but selling a book is so much more. Again, just like we were talking about, that didn't occur to me until it occurred to me. You know what I'm saying? I was no longer freelancing. I had taken a, a full-time writing position with Bill at Grantland. And so we were just gearing up for that. And the, I had the Rap Your Book coming out. This was in 2015. Mm. And nobody really knew what the Rap Your Book was going to do. We all assumed it was going to sell a modest amount of copies. Every uh, publishing house, they do projections how many copies they think you'll sell of a book. And for the Rap Your Book, it was like, okay, this book is going to sell 17,000 copies over two years or something crazy like that. And I was like, all right, that sounds right to me. I don't know how to get people to buy a book. Mm. I don't know why people would be excited about a book from me. But then the book came out and it we sold 17,000 copies in two weeks. And it was like, hold on a second, we might be onto something here. So be, it didn't occur to me until it happened. Mm. All, again, all of this stuff is just sort of happening by accident and without any real forethought. And that it was the same thing with the book. I had no idea that I could do that. I had no idea that people were interested in that until we tried it and it happened. So do you have any insight as to why it was successful? Like I know uh, you've obviously got a, a fairly rabid following, especially on Twitter, but do you think it was the concept or do you think it was your personality or maybe a mix of both of those things? I think I know it definitely started on Twitter. That's where the groundswell was. At the time, I had maybe 40,000 people following me. So I was able to leverage that into like a couple thousand sales. Mm. And once you get to a certain, there's like a tipping point, basically, once you get to a certain number, then other places become interested in covering it. The book was coming out. We, we sold out on Amazon and we sold out on Barnes & Noble and then we sold out on this other website, uh, this other bookstore called Books A Million. Like it just kept selling out and every time I was making a big deal about it on Twitter. So after a while, some of the like the media people who follow me said, oh, we should write about this thing that's happening with this book. And then when a story like that comes out, people will get more excited about buying it and it just sort of snowballed that way. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, what was it like when you realized not only had you written a great book, but people wanted it they were buying it they enjoyed it and it was you know something that was worth the hype uh i was excited you know you're always nervous that people will be excited about it or that they'll like it and that uh, it was just a very fulfilling to watch it take off i will always remember getting a phone call from the editor my editor's woman named samantha from abrams uh, i remember her i was in la she called me to tell me that the book made the new york times bestseller list and I was super worried that I wasn't going to do it, and but it snuck on there, and she called, and I remember I did like that fist pump that Michael Jordan did <laughs> when he hit the shot over Craig Elo, yeah, where he like jumps, and I, I did uh, you a did the jump version of that <laughs> yeah. because I knew from then going forward, every time somebody talked to me or wrote about me, they were going to write New York Times bestselling author, which is like a big thing to have in front of your name. It is, yeah, and. Uh, so yeah, it was like a, it was very a very gratifying feeling to know that this weird nerdy thing I did had resonated at least a little bit with some people. That's awesome. So you mentioned Twitter and the groundswell and that kind of thing, and I've heard a lot of people 
describe you as one of the best people to follow on Twitter. I have to agree with them. What do you think it is about the way that you use that social media platform that seems to get such a passionate following? Because you've, you know, you've got the the army there. You mobilize that army to do some amazing things when it comes to like charity and you know buying the books for other people who can't afford it and all these kind of things. So, what do you think it is that fosters that sense of community? Well, the first main thing is I'm just on it all the time. I work at the Ringer right now but I work out of San Antonio. I'm the only person from the ringer who's there. So I don't go to an office filled with other people. So I'm like lonely all day long if I'm not hanging out with my kids. And uh, so I'm just on there making jokes, building up equity, basically. So uh, I think that's one of the things that gets mentioned to me a lot. I'll get contacted by like a company, whatever shoe company hits me up and they're like, hey, we're trying to get some traction with the social media campaign we've got going on why isn't it working and then i have to explain to them like you're asking me to like there's no secret here the reason that i can get people to do this thing is because i'm on there all the time they see me all the time so it's not just me showing up every couple months saying hey buy this thing you know we're hanging out so we everybody feels like we're we're friends i think that's probably the biggest part of it yeah people understand that, that i'm just on there sticking around making jokes or whatever and we feel like buddies if your buddy has a thing you're, you're more likely to support him or her than if they're not your buddy you know what i'm saying sure that's probably it. Uh, i think that's probably the biggest thing also maybe the second biggest part of it is twitter is a very natural thing for me it's text-based it's not like instagram i'm not very good at instagram uh, but i'm good at twitter because it's you know that's that's the world i live in a text-based world and then also you know people are on it to watch basketball games go watch award shows or whatever and I'm, I'm okay I'm decent at making jokes or grabbing little observations during that I think people enjoy that sort of thing as well okay and obviously Twitter is a great tool for communication but it can get really kind of gross on there sometimes with uh, the way that people troll and the negativity you see so how do you deal with that as someone who's now very much a public figure and have your fair share of people coming at you. I know you love that block button. Is that really all it is? Is showing people that if they come at you sideways, they're not going to be following you much longer? Yeah, that's a, definitely part of it. Just showing people, uh, I don't know, that's like a funny gag to do is <laughs> to just block somebody who's not being very nice. Uh, but yeah, most people, when they see that, they go like, oh, okay, well, I'm probably, if I'm going to keep following this person, I probably should not do that. But that's like a very small percentage of it. Most people, I just block them without making a fuss of it. Sure. Like you can tell when someone has bad intentions. And it's just like, I don't I don't owe you my time. I don't owe you my energy. I'm just going to push this button and then I'll never hear from you again or know anything about you again. I think that's probably all that it is. And also, it's much easier to be a, a guy on Twitter than like to be a woman on Twitter. It's not near as, as aggressive. I don't think I have too much to worry about yeah and i heard you were working on a tv series how did that come about and how's it going uh yeah we have a couple that we're doing right now one of them is that the rap year book that i mentioned earlier that's being turned into a documentary oh nice it's like a six episode documentary that will be on amc which is like the same channel that breaking bad came on or Mm -hmm. mad men came on like you know one of those premium channels yeah so that's being filmed right now we had a sitcom 
that I sold to AMC. And the way that that one happened was I was talking with uh, some agents, some TV agents, and I mentioned an idea. They were like, hey, you should try and do a TV show. I said, all right, I'll, I'll try to do a TV show, sure. And just like we talked about before, I just said, I'll do the thing. And so I sent them some ideas, and they're like, oh, this one's cool. And they used that to set up meetings with showrunners, which are people who run the shows mm. at, <laughs> at <laughs> studios. And uh, so I flew out to L.A. I was out there for like a week, and I met with 20 different people. And one of them was this guy named Mike Schur, who has done shows like The Office and Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place. Just a bunch of good shows. And uh, him and I got along really well, so he said, oh, hey, you want to do a thing together? And if you get a blessing from Mike Schur in the TV world, then that's just like automatic. You're going to get a shot. You know what I'm saying? So that's how that one that one came about. Same as with writing. Like once you get the the, uh, the blessing from Bill Simmons, everybody's like, oh, this person must be valuable. Yeah. So that, that's what happened with the TV stuff. I didn't have any reputation in that world and then Mike touched me on the forehead and then everybody went, oh, well, we'll listen to this guy, I guess. <laughs> and you're able to get meetings with different networks or whatever. So that's how that stuff happens. But again, you got to be in LA really to, to do a serious TV show. Mm. Like if you sell a sitcom, you basically have to live in L.A. for five months while you do the pilot, just the pilot. And uh, so that's, you know, that's how that world is. It's way different than in the book world. Book world, they just give you some money and let you live on your own for a year and then show up a year later and ask you where the book is. Yeah. <laughs> TV is like the opposite of that. So is that just in work in progress at the moment or have we got a, a release window? How's it looking? Uh, no, the, that show is, Paused, I guess, is a, is a good word. ABC passed on it. And so it was like, you know, if you want to sell it, you're going to have to come to LA. Right. To like talk to these other networks or whatever. And I don't want to go to LA. I've got kids. I've got three children. And I don't want to just disappear out of their lives for, you know, five months. That doesn't sound like a good idea to me. So hmm. I just won't do that. Sure. And is that part of the reason that you've uh, avoided moving? with the rest of the Ringer crew? Is it just that sense of staying grounded and wanting to, like, I guess part being in, in Texas is part of your identity, yeah? Yeah, I'm a Texas boy. This is where I've lived almost my whole entire life. There was a small period where we didn't live here when my dad was in the military. But beyond that, yeah, this is what I, this is what I know. This is the lifestyle that I'm used to living. Hmm. And all my people are here. If I move to LA, I, I automatically have zero family around me. When we were in Houston, my wife's family was there. We just moved to San Antonio. My family is here. And uh, I feel like it's just better that way. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go somewhere where I can't go hang out with one of my cousins or my uncles or whatever. Don't seem fun. And the Spurs, of course. And the Spurs, of course. How am I supposed to watch the Spurs when all they're showing is the Lakers in Los (laughs) Angeles? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So you talk about these experiences of, uh, you know, construction, teaching, jumping out and, and trying the writing and getting, you know, fired and all this kind of thing. Do you feel like having these life experiences before you were a full-time writer has kind of given you a unique flavor to your personality that a lot of people wouldn't have if they just came through the traditional methods of, uh, you know, university and then working at a newspaper and, and trying to branch out into the internet? I don't think it made things any 
different. I mean, I can't, I can't say, oh, it's more beneficial if you don't go to journalism sure. school if you want to be a journalist. Like, that sounds silly to me. More than anything, yeah. it's just, it just sort of shaped the optics that I'm able to look at things through. Yeah. If I watch a movie, like, I'm going to see it different than you are. You live in a different part of the world. You mm. grew up a little bit different. That's just how things are naturally. I don't think a professional path does too, too much as far as, like, determining the way that you write or whatever. You just end up doing what you Anyway. Yeah, I, I just think like uh, having a unique experience before you got into it would give you a point of difference to a lot of other writers, which I think has been a big part of why so many people have uh, enjoyed what you've done up to now. Yeah, that might be fair to say, but I don't want to make it seem like if you don't do all of that other stuff, you can't get to the spot you want sure. to get to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. I think I think the main thing to take away from if you look at how I ended up where I am is not that you need a bunch of different life experiences. It's just that you, all you really need is just the ability to keep getting up after you get kicked in the teeth. And if you do that enough times, you're going to end up where you want to be. But I think that's the main thing that separates people who are successful in a field versus people who aren't. Is we're all sort of walking towards the same goal, but people, some people, they get tripped up enough times, they're just going to stop. Yeah. And for me, I've been able to just keep on going. It's certainly not because I'm the most talented writer. I'm definitely not that. I'm just good at getting back up as well. Cool. Do you find that there's some common misconceptions about your career or the way that you got to where you are? Yeah, and it sort of ties back into what we were just talking about. I think people assume I'm this really smart, really creative person just by nature. And that's definitely not the case. But I barely graduated school. I was like in remedial math classes, like this sort of thing. But again, that's not the part of writing that's important. The part is just keeping, you just keep on trying. I think that's definitely the biggest misconception. Like I'll get emails all the time from young writers or even older writers. They're like, hey, how did you come up with this idea or that idea? Does it just hit you? Like, I wish I was like that. And I'm trying to tell them, like, no, that doesn't just it doesn't just happen. It's like there's effort, there's time and energy that goes into to a thing. Because uh, when I'm writing, I'm trying to make sure I'm not writing sort of the same stories that everybody else is writing. Because we're all writing about the same stuff. I just want to try to write about it in a different way, and that takes time. That takes energy. I'll give you an a, a, an example. A couple of months ago. It was the 10th anniversary of this album by Lil Wayne, who's a rapper in America. Mm-hmm. Do y'all know Lil Wayne in yeah. Australia? Yeah, man. Oh, okay. We get music know. over I here. Know. <laughs> I don't know what Australia's like. Who knows? But, okay, so Lil Wayne had this album called The Carter Three, and it was a really important album 10 years ago. It was like a pivotal point in rap music. A few weeks before it came out, I mean, a few weeks before the anniversary, I was digging around looking for stuff to write about and I saw that that anniversary was coming up and I said, oh, okay, cool. I want to write about this. But I knew because the album was so big and so important that every other website was going to write about it as well. So I couldn't just, I couldn't in good faith just write like, oh, here's why this album was important and here's how it changed rap because that was the exact article I knew 10 other places were going to have. So I spent like six hours reading through old Lil Wayne interviews listening to all the songs in the album, listening to other songs, trying to figure out a way to write about it without writing that story. You know mm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, while I was listening to a bunch of Little Wayne music, I noticed that several times during that 
um, during his songs, he would make the analogy like, I'm so sick at rapping, I got the flu, or whatever. Stuff like that. He just kept using that same sort of rhyme pattern. And then I thought, oh, I should, I'm going to look up all of the times that he said his flow is so sick. And I'm going to write about that. And so like, I spent another few hours digging all those up and then digging up a bunch of examples of other people doing it. And eventually I settled on the idea that I was going to write about, let's do an article about whose flow was the sickest, like the literal sickest, <laughs> and write, a, write that. And then within the article, I can talk about how important the album was and blah, 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 but it's going to have a different angle. So I was able to write that story, and mine was the only one that was about that thing, even though we were all writing about Little Wayne. And so, you know, it did fairly well. And uh, it wasn't like, oh, it took me five seconds to think of this thing. That was you know, eight hours of figuring out how to write about it. And that's sure. what I tried to let people understand and let people know. Like, it's just a matter of you sitting there at the computer, digging through stuff until you figure out a smart way to do a thing that hasn't been done yet. Yeah, that's cool. So on, on that, what would you say has been the hardest part of getting to where you are? Well, the hardest part is, again, all of the times you get told no. It just, it's hard to hear no after you come up with an idea and not take it personally. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Does that still Even happen? Now, like with Bill and everything? I've written, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've written uh, a few books. One was a New York Times bestseller that's getting turned into a TV show. Another one was a number one New York Times bestseller that got on Obama's best of list. <laughs> and I will still, every week I send ideas to my editors and every week they tell me no for some stuff. And every week it hurts my feelings. This is, I've been writing for nine or 10 years now, and every single time I get told no, it still hurts my feelings. I think that's the hardest part mm. of all of this, for sure. You, you, you just are constantly being told no for stuff. And in the beginning, you're not only being told no, but you're being ignored. You'll email 50 editors, and you'll hear back from maybe one of them. You know what I'm saying? That, I think, is the, the hardest part of anything, is just, figuring out how to get into the game and figuring out how to stay going forward. So what's the best idea that's been knocked back by the ringer? The best idea by the ringer? Ooh, I've got a, I've got a list of like 65 things <laughs> that have been turned down that I'm going to, that I'm saving for, I don't know exactly what. A book, yeah. But, but uh, I'm going to, I'll figure it out eventually. I can't even think of the, the main one. Because I'm telling you, every, it happens every week. I've got a list of them. Mm. over these last two years of like and it's at least 60 items long of stuff uh-huh. I wanted to do that didn't work out and it, was, and it was usually because it just wasn't smart enough or it wasn't deep enough or it wasn't clever enough all of those ideas need workshopping still but yeah. I don't know I can't think of the the main one I remember the main one when I was at Grantland because I uh, I definitely saved that one but I wanted to write about it was this thing about Ferris Bueller and Benny the Jet Rodriguez from the sandlot right. and uh, it was like this whole big thing I wanted to, to write about that I still have saved somewhere on my computer you'll have to put out a book called B-Sides or something and just pile them all together <laughs> yeah yeah I figure out the good idea there's actually one idea it was called Dad Levels I wanted to write about like different dad based attributes like dad strength is one that gets mentioned a lot yeah when you just become stronger when you're a dad <laughs> in certain circumstances but I wanted to figure out what all of the other different dad attributes were. Like there was one that I had in there called dad butts. Because dad butts are weird. <laughs> um, but it was like a whole bunch of dad things. 
and I pitched this article like every week for a year. Every <laughs> single week, I was like, hey, can I do this now? Hey, can I do this now? And every week, they told me no. And uh, I still haven't gotten to do that article, but I remember pitching that one over and over and over. Every chance I got, I tried to pitch it, and I just never could get it through. Mm, I believe in you. I'll keep an eye out for that one. All right. <laughs> so uh, what, what's your number one piece of advice to people? You, you get a lot of emails. I know I see a lot of tweets of people asking for you to look over their work and that kind of thing. Like what do you tell people about how they can make it as a writer? Well, I, I, whenever I'm reading stuff from younger writers, everybody's making like the same four or five mistakes. Like one of them, for example, is a writer will use a cliche in their writing. Mm-hmm. Like uh, at the end of the day or needless to say or stuff like that and uh it's in every single thing that i read from most every young writer and that's an easy way to get good fast is to just don't do that anymore you get rid of those things and you figure out a different way to say it Hmm. and once you get used to figuring out a different way to say things then your writing just becomes a little more energetic a little more lively you want writers or you want readers to read your stuff and they're going to go into it feeling like okay this person is going to write a sentence that i've never read before somewhere within this copy that will be that. And I think if you start trying to keep that stuff in mind, just don't do what other people are doing, then that, everything else will fall apart. Because eventually, then your brain will go like, oh, I'm, I'm writing these sentences. I'm trying to write these sentences that nobody else is writing. I should probably try and do stories that nobody else is writing. And you, you just sort of build that up. And the better you get at that, like the easier things become for you. Let's say you and I were both writing an article. And we both somehow ended up writing the exact same version of an article. Let's say you wrote that same Little Wayne article that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Separate of each other, we didn't know about it. You're way over there in Australia, I'm here in America, but we both wrote the same article. More people are going to read mine than yours simply because I'm more popular than you are right now. Correct. <laughs> That's the only reason. Yours could be 100% better, but they're going to read mine over yours if they see them next to each other because they know my name. So when you're first starting out, it's very important that you're not writing the same stuff that other people are writing. Like if you do a game recap, just a regular game recap, why would I choose to read yours over Kevin O'Connor's or Zach Lowe's when I already know them and I know that they're smart and they know their stuff, you know? But if you start doing stuff that other people aren't doing yet, then you force my hand as the reader. If I want to read that thing, I have to read yours because yours is the only one. And I think for young writers, if you keep that in mind, that that helps a lot. Yeah, it's cool, I guess, just to train your brain to think a little bit differently about how to approach it. So my last question, Shay, and then I have a Spurs question, if you have the time, but it's if you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? Uh, I would dunk a basketball. Yeah. (laughs) I've always always wanted to dunk a basketball on a regulation goal. Right. I can dunk it on an eight-foot goal. I don't think I can dunk it on a nine-foot goal. One time when I was younger, I could have. Yeah, I think you wrote about this recently, I, didn't you? I, yeah, but a 10-foot goal, that's the thing I want to do. I would trade five years of my life <laughs> to dunk it one time in a pickup basketball game. What kind of dunk is it? I want to do a LeBron James thunder dunk when he just cocks it all the way back. The no regard for that's human life I, one? I, yeah, I want that dunk, the one-hander. Or if not that one, I want a Dominique Wilkins two-hander off two feet shatter everything dunk right and who are you dunking on uh i'm dunking on whoever's in the game that we're playing in. Okay. that's what i'm dunking on whoever happens to be playing whichever of my unathletic 
Mexican friends standing <laughs> by the round. I'm going to destroy them. I thought you might have like a dream dunk on enemy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. <laughs> on a dunk on, <laughs> dunk on Martin Luther King. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Do you have time for a Spurs question? Yeah, I've got time for a Spurs question. Awesome. Okay. In, let's say in, in five, ten years, looking back, what will be more baffling to Spurs fans? Is it the fact that Kawhi Leonard left the Spurs or the fact that you guys lost game six somehow? And you know which game six I'm talking about. Uh, more baffling will be that the, that Kawhi left for sure. Yeah, that just nobody understands that. You can watch Game Six film and go like, "Oh, we we took Tim Duncan out for that possession, and Chris Bosh got the rebound, and that's why that happened." And I still can't believe fine. it. Also, that that memory doesn't hurt nearly as much as any as some of the other big Spurs memories because they came back and won it the next year, and they won it against the Heat. So it was like, yeah. The demons were exercised when that when that shot went in. When the Spurs lost that finals, it was like this big mm. open wound across your chest. But when they came back and won it the next year, it was like it it had healed over into a into a cool battle scar, a thing that you got to say you lived through. Sure. And it feels good now because they they got the last lap. So I'm more baffling is definitely the Kawhi thing. Nobody understands any any part of it. Yeah, it is a, a very weird situation. And I wonder if there's like, do you think that there's a hidden story that's going to come out about it? Uh, no, I don't I don't think so. I think it's, a, I think it's like a hundred tiny little things that happen, mm. like microaggressions, lines with various points that just sort of added up to them having to break up. Sometimes it's not that somebody cheated on the other person, it's just that you fought too many times over where you were going to eat dinner. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks so much, Shay. It's uh, been awesome to talk to you. One of my bucket list guests. I've got Chuck Closterman and Bill Simmons on there still. So hopefully you can um, give me some of that street cred to get them on here one day. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, uh, good luck. See, that's you. You're flipping a smaller thing into a bigger thing. That's what you got to do sometimes. Yeah, that's, what, that's how I do it. I, I will ask, why did you agree to this podcast? Because I didn't expect that you would. <laughs> because you asked like multiple times and all of the little obstacles I threw at you about like, oh, I can't do it this day, I can't do it that day, I don't have, I'm not going to be a computer or whatever. All of them, you're just like, all right, no problem, I'll make it work. Yeah. I knew you weren't going to give up, so I just did it. Well, that's it. I guess the, the show's called Putting In Work, so that's what it's all about. There you go. Put in that work. All right. Thanks so much, Shay. All right. Take it easy. Thank you for listening and thanks to Audio Technica. You can catch Shay on Twitter at Shay Serrano. That's S-H-E-A. You can find all of his great work over at theringer.com. If you enjoyed the show, it would be awesome if you could leave a five-star iTunes review. If you really enjoyed it, you can head over to 8bit.net slash P-I-W. That's A-T-E-B-I-T. And that's where you can pick up some sweet putting in work merchandise and check out the rest of the awesome podcast content from the 8-Bit Collective. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jono himself. And until next week keep putting in work.